If you will please take your Bibles and go to Matthew chapter 17. If you're visiting with us, there's a Bible, black Bible, in turn in front of you. And you'll find, go to the back of that Bible, find page 14, page 14 to find Matthew chapter 17. Matthew chapter 17, we'll do the first 13 verses. Matthew chapter 17, the first 13 verses, again that black Bible, page 14. Matthew chapter 17. Yes, sir. I have the clicker. I'm one click away. I won't quit my day job. Matthew chapter 17. And six days later, Jesus took with him Peter and James and John, his brother, and brought them up to a high mountain by themselves. And he was transformed before them and his face shone as the sun, and his garments became white as light. And behold, Moses and Elijah appeared to them, conversing with him. And answering, Peter said to Jesus, Lord, it is good for us to be here. If you want, I'll make three tents here, one for you, one for Moses, and one for Elijah. While he was still speaking, behold, a bright cloud enveloped them. And behold, a voice out of the cloud saying, This is my beloved son with whom I'm well pleased. Listen to him. And hearing this, the disciples fell on their faces and were much afraid. And Jesus came and touching them, he said, Arise and do not be afraid. And lifting up their eyes, they saw no one except Jesus himself alone. And as they were coming down from the mountain, Jesus commanded them, saying, Tell the vision to no one until the Son of Man has risen from the dead. And his disciples asked him, saying, Why then do the scribes say it's necessary Elijah to come first? And answering, he said, Elijah is coming and will restore all things. But I say to you that Elijah already came, and they did not recognize him, but did to him whatever they wanted in the same way the Son of Man is going to suffer by them. Then the disciples understood they had spoken to them about John the Baptist. Democratic Senator Chris Coons, he told CNN's John Berman the following, quote, I'm enough of a sort of traditionalist about our institutions. Even when there's a lot that our president does that I find disturbing, offensive, unconventional. I have a hard time with the idea of a crowd on a globally devised sporting event chanting, lock him up about our president. Coons added, I frankly think the office of the presidency deserves respect even when the actions of our president at times don't. End quote. Now he said this in response to what people did uh, when President Trump was introduced at Game 5 of the World Series. He was introduced and people were shout, chanting, lock him up, impeach Trump, things like that. Now wherever you may land with the president, whether you agree with him or not, I'd like to stir the pot with you. Just to kind of get your blood pumping so you stay awake. Um, wherever you may land with the president, 
Quite honestly, I really don't care. But the senator is right. The office deserves respect at every level. And the younger generation has lost that, in my opinion. And not just with the presidency, but other things as well. The position deserves respect. And if we say this with the presidents, who deserves respect, how much more so for Jesus? Matthew's gospel is about bowing down and worshiping Jesus, the Messiah, King of Israel. You should do that because he deserves it. If you want to put this passage in any way, you can put it like this. Jesus deserves my worship. You can put it that way. Or he deserves my life. Or you can say, he deserves my praise. I'm just just giving you different ways you can say this. But I title it, he deserves it. He deserves you to bow down. He deserves you to worship him. He deserves our worship. Statement, a couple of statements. Christ Jesus deserves our worship. Faith, love, fear, focus, obedience. Kind of put those in commas, but you actually should even put those all together because they're all encompassing. When there's faith, there's obedience. When there's fear, there's love. When there's a focus, there's love. It's, it's, they're together. They're not like, like individual type aspects. It's all encompassing. Christ Jesus deserves our worship. And when you worship, it means you have faith, love, fear, focus, obedience. Another statement, Jesus' true glorious identity was revealed to reassure us that he truly is who he says he is and thus deserves our faith, faith, love, fear, focus, and obedience. And this glorious Christ will still have to suffer. He displays himself in all that he is, but he'll still have to suffer which is it's good for us to see this because in this life we will suffer. We've got to remind ourselves of this. If Jesus suffered, so will we. But if Jesus was glorified and if we've been united with our Lord, we will be glorified as well. So don't miss that. He reassures us He has suffered and died. He has gloriously risen. And he will gloriously return. He deserves all our praise. Part of the reason that we celebrate the Lord's Supper, which we'll do that later, is we're proclaiming the Lord's death until he comes. We're we're proclaiming this promise that he's going to return in the future. He's coming back. We're we're thinking about that. It should be the forefront of our minds. And when you're suffering, <laughs> that seems to be more at the forefront of your mind. Right? Another statement for you. The awesomeness of Jesus is displayed gloriously. The glory that comes after the suffering. The crown after the cross. The exaltation after humiliation. Yet, he reminded the disciples 
that suffering and death must come first in the same way it came to John. The Father assured these three disciples Jesus truly is his Son who truly pleased him and should be obeyed. This true real-life experience, it counterbalanced what, what Jesus had just said about death, about a cross. Beyond death comes life, glorious life. And so this gave these disciples, and it gives us extraordinary confirmation of his lordship, of his control. When things seem to unravel, God knows He's got it. He's in control. He's sovereign. And this, when, you, when this unfolds before us who Jesus really is, it's, it's a good reminder. Oh, that's, that's right. Yeah, God is God and I'm not. That's, yeah, that's right. Okay, good. Good, good. I'm glad. It's not all on me, right? It's not all on you. So notice... And we begin, first, reassurance given, the glorious Christ. First three verses. And six days later, again, we take the view that chapter 16, verse 28, refers to this time of Jesus being transformed. He took with him Peter, James, and John, his brother, James's brother, brought them up to a high mountain by themselves, it reminds us of uh, Moses' experience on Mount Sinai. It reminds us of Elijah's experience on Mount Carmel. And these three were the closest to Jesus, Peter, James, and John. John being really close. They would experience something that would just rock their world. Look at verse two. And Numeric Xander says he was transfigured. Literally, the word is metamorphosis. He was transformed they got a glimpse of the coming kingdom by Jesus' transformation. It's just boom. It's like the veil came off. Now Moses' face did shine, it's true. But Jesus, notice, his face shone as the sun. Second, his garments became as white as light. This anticipated what God's people would see when Jesus would return and what they would experience themselves when Jesus would return on that last day. And then notice what happens, verse three. And look, or behold, Moses and Elijah appeared to them conversing, talking with him. These are key Figures and representatives of the Old Testament. I mean, not simply that, but that's part of it. I mean, Moses with the law, the great lawgiver. Elijah with the prophets, outstanding among the prophets. Mm -hmm. Both had mountaintop experiences, and they were types of Christ. They pointed forward to the Messiah. In the Old Testament, what was the Messiah going to be like? Look at Moses. In the Old Testament, what, Messiah, what was Messiah going to be like? Look at Elijah. They pointed 
to Jesus. Jesus being the antitype, Moses and Elijah being types, descriptions, representatives of what Jesus is going to be like. So this is happening before them. It's unfolding. Here's Jesus. Every glorious Christ. Then a wrong response. Way to go, Peter. I gotta love him. Verse four. In answering, I don't remember Jesus actually talking to him. That's sarcastic. And answering Jesus, excuse me, Peter said to Jesus, Lord, it is good for us to be here. If you want, I will make three tents here. One for you, one for Moses, one for Elijah. Okay, I'll describe this. Okay, tents, tabernacles, tents. Kind of reenacts the Feast of Tabernacles. Uh, so to have a longer stay with Jesus and the key visitors. Interesting, you want to make three tents. What about him? And James and John, maybe they would stay with one of them, I don't know. But what's most important is this. He put Jesus on par with these two guys. Do you know that? He was, one writer put it like this, blurring the uniqueness of the Messiah, of the Son of God. Because it wasn't about Moses and Elijah. It was about Jesus and his glory. Peter's response was wrong. He blurred the uniqueness of as what we were just saying. You are the glorious Christ, the greatest of all delights. Your power is unequaled. Your love beyond all heights. And setting up these three tents would have had two bad results. First, depreciation of Jesus. Second, deification of Moses and Elijah to Messiah status. That's why that was a wrong response. It's not so much about him saying, let's stay, I mean, okay. And you know, Peter putting his foot in his mouth. I mean, that's true. But he goes beyond that. He was depreciating Jesus there was a godness that was put into Moses and Elijah. Well, notice how we have this tendency to get our focus off of Jesus too, don't we? We begin to depreciate the son. He doesn't know what he's doing. Oh, he can't be sovereign in that. He can't be in control of that. Oh, really? Maybe we are a lot like Peter. Notice what happens. Reassurance given again. Obey my son. Verse 5. While he's still speaking, behold, a bright cloud, better would be enveloped them. It reminds us of the Shekinah glory, the visible manifestation of God's presence. Remember we saw that months ago. 
when we look at Exodus chapter 40, when they built the tabernacle, and the glory of God, which was a depiction of a manifestation of his presence, came into the tabernacle. So this is kind of what's happening here. Not to mention the clouds that come back when Jesus, when Jesus comes back. Clouds that come when Jesus comes back. But the Shekinah glory envelops them, swallows them, maybe. You want to put that down? And then it says, And behold, a voice out of the clouds saying, This is my beloved Son with whom I'm well pleased. A heavenly voice repeating the approval from Jesus' baptism, and then some listen to him. No, no, no. It's not Moses. No, 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 no. It's not Elijah. No, no, Peter. Him. My son. Christ. This was the Father's voice speaking of his eternal, only begotten Son. He alone is unique above these two others, and only he should be obeyed, period. The disciples were gotten confused over this whole talk about Jesus suffering. What's all this suffering stuff? What is this? So this voice confirmed Jesus' exact identity and was the complete endorsement from the Father. Jesus is first and foremost. And we need to be reminded of that, don't we? Like almost all the time, daily, reminding ourselves, no, no, Jesus, you're first and foremost. I get so caught up in so many other things. This is my beloved son. I'm well pleased with him. Obey him. Obey him. Remember what we said just a few moments ago. Peter setting up these tents, the the whole tent thing that he came up with. Depreciation of Jesus, deification of Moses and Elijah, right? We said that. That's the reason for the voice. No, 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 Peter. My son's not like them. They, they point to him. You obey Jesus. He must be your focus. Moses and Elijah were not God's beloved son in whom the father is so pleased and takes such great pleasure. Really, Peter? You put Moses and Elijah on the same level? What are you thinking? No way. That reassurance is given once again and the father says, obey my son. That's how you should respond. So, so we do not obey the Old Testament law per se. As Christians, we live under the law of Christ. We've talked about this before. Christ who's fulfilled the law. Christ, who's the ultimate interpreter of the law. The focus now is on Jesus. Moses' glory pales in comparison to the glory of the eternal, beloved, begotten Son of God, the Messiah. So this vision 
is meant to display similarities with Moses on Mount Sinai, Elijah on Mount Carmel, yes, that's true, but it's also meant to show the absolute uniqueness, exclusivity, and matchlessness of Jesus. He's absolute, he's exclusive, there's no one like him. So you have the Father and Jesus, they temporarily peel back and they uncover who the glorious Christ really is. Like they got a, just a little taste of it. Peter, James, and John. And, and, and they'll see this glory return at Jesus' resurrection, his ascension, and his return to earth. So amid the suffering that comes, glory is inevitable, totally guaranteed. Even though there's suffering, there will be glory. Even though there's a cross, there will be a crown. That's a promise. Well, how do you know God's gonna keep his promise? Well, he did it with Jesus. If he did it with his son, with whom he's well pleased, and if you're united to his son, guess what's gonna happen to you? The same thing, brethren. The same thing, O Christian. So at the end of the day, it's not Moses who we should be obeying. Jesus alone should be our focus and should be obeyed. You know, you think about how how did God do this? God in the flesh. I mean, what a mystery. How the eternal Son of God came into our world as a human baby and then how Jesus' divine nature and and his human nature, they were linked here at his transformation. It's like staggering. That's why we sing that song, Come behold the wondrous mystery. Come behold the wondrous mystery. It's a mystery. Look, one thing's for sure. Matthew's account of the transformation guarantees uh, Jesus truly is Jesus. He fulfilled all biblical prophecy. He's God's promise of a future kingdom. It will happen. It will. And it gives a stamp of approval authenticates not just Jesus' identity as the Messiah, Son of God, the King of Israel, but also and anticipates his future coming and his future judging of the whole world. You see that all here from Matthew 17. It's a a small window into who he really is and what he will do in the future. But not, not just his future, but ours as well. We will face a future of glory because of our unity and oneness to the Lord Jesus Christ, because of our faith and worship of him alone, because we're united to the Son. We will be glorified. We will have a crown. Even though now we suffer, even though now we bear up a cross. Which is why you, if you're not a Christian, you should respond to Jesus. 
You should respond to the gospel. You should trust Christ. And I'll tell you, it's not going to be your best life now. It might be your worst life. You might have a horrible life. It might be the worst thing to become a Christian. Oh, but yet it's so worth it. You wonder why? We just read it. Glory. The kingdom is so valuable. It's priceless. Is it not worth it? Yes, it is. So then you kind of see, I describe this as like a better response. Verse six. And the disciples hearing this fell on their faces and were very much afraid. Now, not that we want to be afraid, but you went from enthusiasm to sheer terror because this cloud swallows them. Maybe they thought they were going to die. This was a better response, yeah. But notice what happens here in verse 7 and 8, which I describe as this. Reassurance given, only Jesus. Jesus came, and touching them, he said, Arise, and don't be afraid. And lifting up their eyes, they saw no one except Jesus himself alone. Tells them to rise, stop fearing. And when they looked up, the only person before them was Jesus alone, which underscored what the Father just said. Obey my son, only only him. Jesus is now, one writer put it like this, quote, the locus of God's presence. In other words, how was God with these disciples? By his beloved son. The reassurance is given because here, Jesus himself there alone with them. He must be their focus. They should stay on target with Jesus. He should be central to them. They just saw him in all his glory and now here he is all by himself just as he was. Thus he truly deserves all our praise. There he is. He reassured them, here I am. It's just me. He reassured them who he really was and how they should respond to him. Trust me, he's saying. Obey me. Believe me. Embrace me. Because only me. Jesus himself alone. Verse 9, I think of this as like a, another wrong response. Look at verse 9. As they were coming down from the mountain, Jesus commanded them saying, tell the vision to no one until the Son of Man is risen from the dead. Why do I say it? A wrong response. Because of the political Messiah that people were so desirous to have, to have for themselves. Dr. Carson puts it like this, to, quote, avoid superficial messianism. People did not understand Jesus' identity and mission. They get it wrong. 
they minimize who Jesus really is or they make Jesus who they want him to be not who he proclaims himself to be. That's so easy for us to do. So he has this you know, glory, right? Uh, just a reassurance is given to these three disciples. They were key, key disciples amongst the 12. He walks through this whole time, but then he reminds them of something. Remembrance given now. The son will suffer. I'm still going to suffer, guys. Because the disciples start in with this question in verse 10. The disciples asked him, saying, Why then do the scribes say that Elijah must come first or is necessary? It must happen, Elijah to come first. So they're confused. Wait, how does this. How does this measure up with the whole Messiah dying and rising thing? What do you mean after you rise from the dead? What's going on? We just saw Elijah. That's like a big deal. What does this all mean? They didn't understand the Messiah dying and rising with Elijah's coming that's proclaimed in Malachi chapter 4 verses 5 and 6 which the scribes had talked about. I'll put it in another words, another way to put this. In other words, why must Jesus the Christ still suffer in Jerusalem? And why must the restoration spoken by Malachi be delayed? They're trying to figure out the timing of everything and its purpose. They didn't understand. So notice what Jesus says. Verse 11, answering he said, Elijah's coming and will restore all things. Verse 12, but I say to you, Elijah already came and they did not recognize him but did to him whatever they wanted. In the same way, the Son of Man is going to suffer by them. Now, there's three parts to Jesus' answer. First, there is some future coming of Elijah who will restore all things. So what was Jesus talking about? I don't know. That's a mystery. I mean, you can go into certain things there in the book of Revelation. The spirit and power of Elijah, one of the two witnesses will come. But Jesus doesn't go into detail about this. Okay. That's the first part of his answer. No, it's the second one. He linked John the Baptist with Elijah as a way to say that Elijah already has come. Verse 12, I say to you, Elijah already came. But instead of responding to him, they did to him whatever they wanted. They, meaning not just the Romans, but they meaning the Jewish people, specifically the Jewish leaders. In other words, the people did not respond appropriately. He's talking about John the Baptist. John the Baptist came uh, to prepare the way for Jesus. John the Baptist came to prepare the way for the Lord. So people, some people did, but the people were called to respond, especially the Jewish leaders. Didn't happen. Jesus says, they did to him whatever they wanted. They killed him. 
He got killed. He was arrested. And then John the Baptist was beheaded, right? Which comes to the third part of Jesus' answer. He linked John's suffering with his own. In the same way, the Son of Man is going to suffer by them. As he did to John, so the Son of Man will suffer by them. So what's Jesus' point? He's saying, look guys, focus on the fact that John the Baptist came in the spirit and power of Elijah. Not on the whole experience that you saw of Elijah here on the mountain. You guys are concerned about this. No. Focus on this. John the Baptist came in the spirit and power of Elijah, but he died. He suffered. So that should be their focus. And if they have this focus, they will understand that John's fate is a foreshadowing of Jesus' fate. In other words, though they just saw Jesus in all his glorious splendor, it doesn't mean he won't suffer. He would still suffer. He would still die. Glory comes. Is that not the theme that runs through the Bible? Culminating and climaxing with the Messiah himself. Suffering, death, glory. You see that throughout the Old Testament. You see that in the New Testament. There's suffering and yet glory follows. There's a cross and yet there's a crown. We gotta be reminded of this in our own personal lives. Because when we follow Jesus, he says, you will suffer. You will. Because he said, if anyone wishes to come after me, he must do what? Deny himself, take up his cross, and follow me. Disciples, verse 13, finally got it. They spoke to them about John the Baptist. John's ministry was a fulfillment of Malachi's prophecy, but also that his suffering and death, John the Baptist, foreshadowed Jesus' suffering and death. That's what Jesus was trying to communicate. I'm the glorious Christ, he says. This is who I am, yes? Let me reassure you, I'm in charge. but I'm still going to have to die. Jesus' true glorious identity was revealed to reassure us that he truly is who he says he is. And thus he deserves our faith, love, fear, focus, obedience. But the glorious Christ will still have to suffer. And so will you. So will you, Christian. We are united with our with our Savior, with the Son of God. We're united and we're connected with Him. We're going to have to suffer. But He still deserves our worship. That's the response we should have. Christ deserves our worship. Christ deserves our worship. Faith, love, fear, focus, obedience. 
be reassured of that today. Reassure yourself in so many different ways. When the father looks at you, he looks at his son, says this is my beloved son with whom I'm well pleased because you're in union with the son of God so he's well pleased with you because of what Christ has done for you. And so you identify, you're connected, you're united with your Savior. So may it spur you on to faith, love, devotion, obedience, passion for him. And, and we do that in a way that we do that in a tangible way is through the elements. Bread and the juice, remind yourself of the gospel. So if you're here, you're, you're, you're a Christian you know the Lord Jesus, you might say, I'm, I don't, I'm not a member of this church. Hey, you come from a church of like faith and practice, and as Baptists, we would prefer that you've been baptized by immersion. Partake of the Lord's Supper with us. You don't have to become a member here. If you're not a Christian, it's not for you. And we also encourage you, if you're a Christian, and you have something against someone else, and you've not gone to try and reconcile with them, and you... There's something that's there. You can't break free from that. Maybe it'd be better for you not to partake of the Lord's Supper. To wait. Wait maybe the next time we partake of that next month. But this is our time to reflect upon the gospel. To fill our minds with the mind of Christ. To fill our mind with the things of the Spirit who points to Jesus. So let's do that. Let's take a moment and pray. Our Lord Jesus, we are praying that at this time, in these few moments that we celebrate um, as, as we call it the Lord's Supper, or call it communion. We commune with you. We renew once again our devotion, our love for you. Our commitment to your truth. Our commitment to you, Lord Jesus. We renew once again what you've done for us. We renew and we think and we ponder what you've done for us at the cross. Let your mind think on these things. Let your mind ponder on these things. After a few moments of thinking, reflecting, I'll have the men come. They'll they'll pass out the bread to us. Let this be a time for you to think, to ponder what, what Christ has done.